0: the role of Hawaii in Pacific diplomacy? Well, Representative Kaika Hele has stepped forward to co-sponsor a House resolution searching for a binding peace agreement with North Korea. And we can tell you about a new film, Crossings, which looks back at an international effort of women activists to end the conflict on the Korean Peninsula. Back in 2015, 30 women from across the world walked across the demilitarized zone in a highly publicized and highly criticized call for peace. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with organizer Christine Ahn and activist and physician Kalama Niheo, both of whom appear in the film about the Hawaii Ties on spearheaded the crossing in 2015.
1: It included Gloria Steinem, America's most famous feminist. It included uh, U.S. Army Colonel Anne Wright, who resigned in protest of the Iraq War. It included lots of American um, activists, but also international um, peacemakers like Leymah um from Liberia and Mairead McGuire from Ireland. And together we we felt we had to bring global attention to this war and that this was the responsibility of the international community to help bring closure to it.
2: And Kalama, how do you see this issue impacting people in Hawaii specifically?
3: So uh, for myself, I am a Kanaka Maoli uh, and Korean um, uh, physician that uh, I try to take care of our people as best I can uh, within the context that there is a glo- there is a, a larger picture of uh, uh, unhealth and unsafety and insecurity. And a big part I think of that affecting people in Hawaii is the role that uh, Paccom plays in Hawaii. And you know I think that we have to realize that you know there's tensions between United States and China, uh, they really are going to manifest in places outside of the, these these centers of power. They really, um, if you look at the Cold War um, patterns, uh, you can see that whenever you have a um, conflict, they usually occur in proxy areas. And particularly in, in, in Korea, it's like they set it up so that they could actually have a war on the ground there between North and South. And it, it, while at the same time not, actually bombing or, you know, having a lot of infiltration into their own homelands. Now, Hawaii understands this and sees this um, in the ways, in, in, in a couple of different ways. In one way, whenever there's a war, the United States military always takes some more land from, particularly from the Kanaka Maoli people. Two, when I went over in 2018, the earlier that year, uh, we had a false missile alert. Uh, and this is something that, you know, this is, we're right in the center of this a nuclear playground that the United States and the world powers have um, utilized these uh, weapons of war and destruction uh, in our own homelands, Kalama Atoll, also known as Johnson Atoll, and also atmospheric nuclear testing. So these things that are happening on this global, larger level, you know, we're not exempt from it. It might feel like it's really far away, but if there's a war, that war will go directly through Hawaii and the people of Hawaii will be impacted.
2: The other thing that I want to touch on is it's, it's one thing to lead an international call for peace, as you did. It's another thing to have that international call be led primarily by women. Christine, mm-hmm. starting with you, why was it important that women spearheaded this discussion?
1: Women are disproportionately impacted by war and violence, whether it's sexualized violence in wartime or the death and destruction that is caused by war and conflicts. You know, women as um, those that are socialized to be the caretakers, uh, you know, provide care, feed, figure out ways to feed your family, provide housing, health. Um, We have a responsibility to make sure that we don't get into that situation. Yes, that's one half of the equation, but the other half of the equation is that Um, Women are incredibly powerful organizers and mobilizers. And when we decided to do the crossing in 2015, there were many that said, well, why just women? And I think it really showed the power of women to be strategic, to be savvy, to be really good negotiators. In that context, you had a very neoconservative president in South Korea, Park Geun-hye, who was the daughter of the former dictator But you had uh, President Obama in the United States, and then North Korea was Kim Jong-un, the the grandson of the founder of North Korea. And so you had a very difficult situation where there was stalemate, where there was regular nuclear testing from the North Korean side, where you had regular military exercises from uh, the U.S. and South Korea. And we still have a stalemate. In our case, we weren't invited to the table. We haven't been invited to the table. But what is really fascinating is that there is a study from Georgetown that came out two years ago that looked at 30 years of data of women involved in informal peace processes, where we took to the streets, where we organized GMG crossings, where we organized protests and lobby visits and town hall meetings and write letters to the editor, when we do that, it actually creates the political will for there to be a peace agreement. And that has been the inspiring journey for me as the person that helped hatch this idea that has brought subsequent delegations to Korea, including the one that Kalama was on, and also to see, as you will in the film, Crossings, about the grassroots movement across this country, including right here in Hawaii, to call for an end to the Korean War, to call for a peace agreement between the U.S. and North Korea and South Korea. To see members of Congress like Kai Kahele and formerly Tulsi Gabbard call for a peace agreement to end the war has been truly inspiring and transformative.
2: Kalama, anything you'd like
1: to
3: add? We have in, in Hawaiian tradition, we have the coup and the Hina aspect. And uh, the coup is the male aspect and the hina is the um, uh, female aspect. And when you look at these, you know, nuclear missiles and these bombs and this, you know, blustering, it's such a, you know, this this negative male energy, not necessarily just men, but, you know, it really represents this very, um, uh, this something that needs to have a balance to it. And I think looking at the way that women can connect to each other, how we can look at a child who's been injured, who hear the stories of families being separated, we are often the weavers, the interconnectors. We can understand the deep, deep pain that mothers feel when they lose their children, when the family is torn apart. And we also can identify with each other the fierceness of a mother's love, of a sister's love with one another, So I think it resonates very deeply. We are connected in so many different ways. We can see how those are interwoven, and I think we are able to, in a better way, to bring that forward, to bring that hina, to bring that balance back into what has become a very unbalanced world.
2: I do want to ask, Christine, you've said that women are disproportionately impacted by this type of war and violence. And that is why it's important to incorporate them into solutions for peace. Is there a chance that we overburden women with the expectations of finding these types of solutions because of cultural expectations about them being more nurturing or about them being responsible for the actions of men?
1: Oh, it's such a brilliant question, Savannah. Absolutely, (laughs) it is absurd, but um, we can't allow the status quo to continue. And if it means that, um, you know, I think as Kalama said so brilliantly is we're trying to restore the balance. And if it means that we have to take action and to mobilize and to organize and build power to do this so that we prevent a conflict, so that we can prevent a false missile alert from actually becoming a real reality, um, then we have to do it. And, you know, what I wish is that there were more resources that actually support women's organizing, that there were more resources for peace building. Um, and, you know, when we look at the, the way that our, um, our national budget is distributed, it's absolutely insane. We invest more than 50 percent in preparation for war on the Pentagon budget, on defense contractors, on basically preparation for violence and war. And, you know, my hope is that when more women um, take leadership, when more women organize together, that we can actually uh, realize a different kind of future, an alternative future that is not one that is militarized.
2: And Paloma, your thoughts?
3: Well, you know, I think that that basically... You know, it is upon the men as well. They need to make those decisions. They have to be a part of being beholden to the future, being responsible for the future. But those folks, men in general, are coming to the tables. Uh, they are coming to tables to talk. And I hold them and I call upon them to be accountable, to be as just as fierce for their love of their future generations and protection. We're not always invited to those other tables. So what we're doing is also trying to create our own table. And together, it needs to move forward. So I don't think that it's unfair to say it's overly on to us because the burden is also upon them. We are just creating a forum in which to seek other avenues of peace since they have not, you know, they don't regularly bring us to their table. I think that we need to really look in Hawaii. Hawaii does not have to be a center for military. It doesn't have to be the center for violence. Uh, and one of those things that we can do and how we envision that is by supporting these peace efforts in Korea, just like we support them throughout the Pacific and throughout the world.
2: And Christine?
3: As Kalama
1: says, is Hawaii can be a place for diplomacy, for peace, for a transformed Asia-Pacific. And we have to call on um, our elected officials to actually do something proactive. And it's hopeful to me that The new representative, Kahele, has actually co-sponsored this resolution, 3446, calling for peace on the Korean Peninsula. And uh, I hope that we will see Ed case take some action and that we see our senators do something proactive instead of waiting for a false missile alert to actually become reality.
0: That was the conversation. Savannah harriman Pote speaking with crossings organizer Christine Ahn and activist and physician Kalama Niheo. Their new film, Entitled Crossings, just premiered as part of the Hawaii International Film Festival and is available to stream online until November 28th for Hawaii residents. We will have links on our website later today. member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz.
4: Oni hoa, onihao hua, oni hao, o ka hua, o o
5: o molokai, o o mao,
0: In today's backyard quiz, we're thinking about one of the many species that have gone extinct in Hawaii. One long-gone bird was a scarlet red beauty about five inches long. It was last seen on Molokai's Ohia Lele Plateau in 1963, although some reports have it surviving into the 1970s. People said this bird looked like a ball of flame because the males were bright red all around. The females were less colorful, with a brownish tinge to their bellies. Their call was compared to the sound of someone cutting wood in the distance. The late 19th century British naturalist Scott Wilson was the first to write about them. He found a female and two males while lost in a fog on Moloka'i. They were endangered even then. Their bright red feathers were sought after for the robes and cloaks of the elite. Do you know the name of this long-gone bird? Call 941-3689, 808-941-3689, or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
6: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neiread Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy.
0: Honolulu Lucille Beats Reality Check today looks at affordable housing in Kaka'ako that some say has done little to ease our state's housing crisis. Reporter Lauren Teruia joins us today. Good morning.
7: Hi, Catherine. Thank you for having me.
0: So the headline uh, uh, of your story is, why isn't affordable housing in Kaka'ako more affordable? So what's the answer?
4: <laughs>
7: Yeah, that's a good question. So this article was really kind of an analysis of how Kaka'ako has been developed, um, particularly in the past 10 years where we've really seen a lot of changes. So back in 1976, the Honolulu Community Development Authority was established to meet unmet community development needs, including a lack of affordable housing. And so this article really kind of Goes in depth on on how how we've done. I, I spoke to business owners, residents, housing activists, as well as the authority and um, developers to, f- to figure out you know h- how has it changed.
0: And so the whole mission of HCDA was to what
7: uh... continue to develop the area to implement not just residences, not just commercial retail, but really all those things and encompass a a larger local community.
0: And, you know, what we've got today, there are a lot of luxury high rises uh, because of the, uh, the large landowners that own property there.
7: Right. That, that's what we found. So um, if we look at some of the newer developments coming out by the Howard Hughes Corporation, their newest tower, the Victoria Place, you know, is on, on their website quotes that starts in the low one millions and And for many uh, residents in Hawaii, that that simply is just not affordable. Um, When we looked at, you know, the demographics of of people in Kaka'ako, despite it kind of having this reputation of of being a community of of affordable units, um, you know, most people, 50%, make over $75,000 a year. And... We also found from a census report back in 2019 that, you know, more than 2,000 units are are sitting vacant. That's almost one in every four homes compared to the statewide vacancy rate of just 11 percent.
0: And I know that there was some attempt to try and tax those units that were just sitting vacant.
7: Yeah, that's right. So um, our former mayor Caldwell was a pretty large propon- um, supporter of the vacancy tax, and um, speaking to, to current mayor Blangiardi, he you know said and stated during his campaign that that's something that he will look at very seriously in the future. So um, while we haven't seen that yet, um, I, I think I think we might have more conversations surrounding that looking forward.
0: And we've got, the you know, the large landowners, you've got Kamehameha Schools, you've got Howard mm-hmm. Hughes. And Howard Hughes mm-hmm. did try and uh, build uh, affordable units in one building um, early mm-hmm. on to, to kind of uh, take care of that reserve housing requirement.
7: That's right, and and I did speak to a resident at Keiki Lohana, which is um, designated as their workforce housing, who said that it's it's actually really not quite as affordable as she was hoping. Um, she expected to to you know, pay maybe more in the 300 range. It ended up being in the 500, and and that doesn't even include those maintenance fees. So I think um, what what the what business owners who are renting in the area, as well as residents, it, it just ended up being a lot more than they were expecting. And and the thing that's really interesting, it, it, it seems like accountability is is uh, it's like a finger pointing game. You know, we don't know whether or not it's the planners or the developers. Even Craig Nakamoto at the HCDA said they don't dictate affordable housing, um, and he wanted to make that really clear. So. Um, as far as my reporting goes, it, it, it almost seems like this back-and-forth game of really who, who is, is in charge of creating these rules and, and enforcing them.
0: Well, one thing that struck me about your article is that you had mentioned that uh, Howard Hughes, instead of building, let's say, another high-rise of affordable units, that they want to just donate money or contribute money instead.
7: That's right. They stated in their monthly report that they are willing to pay a cash-in-lieu fee instead of creating more affordable housing. So we're going to see how how that turns out. Um, When I did speak to them through email, they they said that they have already exceeded their 20% residential requirement by 300%, but that did include their new development that has yet to be built yet.
0: All right, and I understand HCDA is proposing uh, some changes to its MAUCA rules uh, next month, so we'll see what that entails. But thanks so much, Lauren.
7: Thank you.
0: That was reporter Lauren Taruya with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org.
6: Support for HPR comes from Kahala Market by Foodland, celebrating the season, offering culinary discoveries such as chef-prepared holiday dinners and wine selections, and gifts made in Hawaii. More at kahalamkt.com. In
2: 1981,
7: HPR debuted with the Lush and Wild Strains of Mahler, broadcast from the old Varsity Building on the campus of UH Manoa. The lore goes that the signal only reached a few blocks' radius. We've grown quite a bit since then. We've moved to a larger space, which we own outright, and we have two stations that reach across the state and beyond through broadcast and digital channels. 40 years of Hawaii Public Radio made possible by you. Thanks for believing.
0: Visualize the boogie board, you know, that rectangular-shaped foam board used to ride the waves. Well, it was invented in 1971, and it quickly grew into a global phenomenon. Just like professional surfing, bodyboarding, as the sport is called today, has its own professional touring circuit with its own legends and celebrities, and crowns a champion every year. It was the invention of Tom Morey, who passed away last month, He was born in Michigan and grew up in California, and for about a decade lived on the Big Island. Maury built the first boogie board out of foam and newspaper while living in Kona at what is now the Hunnels Beach. Earlier this month, the surfing community erected a sign there commemorating the invention of the boogie board. They also took part in a paddle-out ceremony in Maury's memory.
8: Uh, This is where it all started for Tom, and uh, really, I think what he experienced that first session out here on a day not too different than this was the joy that uh, he had in in writing what he did and uh, that joy is universal it's a feeling that we all have when we go in the water we ride these waves it's beyond culture it's beyond race it's beyond religion and uh, it's a universal feeling of love that um, i think he really uh, wanted to share with everybody and i think through this simple piece of foam
0: he's done that that was bodyboarding legend and kona native mike stewart a nine-time bodyboarding world champion and probably the most decorated and recognized athlete in the sport he was a long-time friend and collaborator with maury he sat down with the conversations russell subiano to talk about the man behind the board
9: how well did you know tom and can you share with our audience what kind of a guy he was
8: yeah he was uh very creative, extremely open-minded, and just a whirlwind of ideas and concepts. And my my first meeting with him really kind of exemplified who he was. Just I could tell right away this guy was super creative and actually was a big catalyst in, in my own inventive mind, I guess. I was kinda of into the same things like uh, you know, just the ideas of making things better etc. So I didn't I didn't know him that well initially. You know, I got a job, I walked in, I knew he was in town and I you know, I was, I was super into writing the book and as a result I'm like, wow, this guy is the actual inventor here. So I decided, wow, it'd be amazing if I could try to meet this guy and and you know, as you know, it's like you you get into it and it's like it becomes part of your being, you know. Yeah. It's just so, you know, just that, that stoke of riding the waves. And so I sought him out, found him and asked for a job. He gave me a job cleaning up the shop initially. And then eventually I was invited upstairs where all the, all the crazy ideas were in his r and center. And the relationship started there and, and just kind of kept growing ever since then. You know, at the time my father wasn't, you know, with us. And so he became almost a fatherly figure as well. So he kind of took me under his wing and and he became my Hanai father. So that was pretty cool, you know. In fact, at our reception for my wife and I, they asked anyone responsible for raising Tom, I'm sorry, anyone responsible for raising Mike, please stand up. And Tom stood up, he was the first guy to stand up. And I'm like, yeah, that's appropriate.
9: From what I understand, he was a pretty accomplished musician as well. Have you seen him perform?
8: Oh yeah, he used to play a lot. He had a drum set at at work. I'd show up at work a lot of times, and he'd be, you know, jamming on the drums. He kind of got me more into jazz too. I wasn't really into that genre of music, but he played it so much on the speakers at work that I kind of got into it. I was like, wow, this is pretty neat. It's easy to work with, you know, easy to work too. That was his his real love, or one of his real loves, was was uh, playing the drums and and jazz music.
9: On Saturday, November sixth, a paddle out ceremony for Tom was held in Kona, and I believe a sign was erected commemorating him. Can you talk about the ceremony? I I, I saw some video. You were you were there. It was a re- kind of a serendipitous,
8: you know, scenario. There was going to be a plaque that was to be erected at Waiaha Park, mm-hmm. which is Honol's, Honol's break, and it was a commencement. For the invention of the bodyboard and Tom's, you know, contribution to surfing, really, and that was going to take place regardless. And so Tom, you know, un- you know, unfortunately has passed. And so we figured we'd just time it all together, and ended up making just a great celebration for you know what he's done, his his legacy. It would actually became a, a very beautiful day. Like it was, it was a, it was a pretty day to begin with. And then, you know, chance would have it, there was like a marathon going on. So, you know, then we thought, oh, we're not going to be able to access the beach. But what ended up happening is it just cut the traffic down. So when they when they did the chant in the morning, the prayer, it was clear, you know, there was no cl- cars going by, it was, you know, it was really nice. So all these things worked out just so that it became like a real special day. You know, a lot of people that have been really moved by the, by the sport, you know, showed up and supported it. And, you know, I don't think Tom could have dreamed
9: for a better send off. I'm glad to hear that. I was off island, but had I not done that, I had heard about the paddle out early enough. I definitely would have been there. You're a nine time world champion. You've been riding bodyboard since the inception of the sport. Next to Tom and his family, I imagine no one has been impacted or or has benefited from the bodyboard more than you. What has your relationship with Tom and the bodyboard meant to you?
8: Yeah, so he's created a lifestyle, really, you know, and a livelihood for not just myself, but many others where, you know, their love of the sport kind of holds them into it and pulls them forward in different endeavors that they take. And so for me, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all in, you know, I've been all in since... I was 13 or 14 and then knowing him and, and, and growing with him. And then, you know, t- has, as the sport grew and, uh, you know, numbers increased, sales increased, and it became actually a, a pretty decent little industry. And that's been substance for a lot of people. And me in particular, you know, I look back to everything that I have is really a result of, of that. My wife, my kids, like, you know, I wouldn't have met my wife. I met her at a contest. And, you know, and, and she was a body And so, you know, my business, the more, you know, well, not maybe more important than that, but I mean, certainly something that was super significant to me was just the access it allowed to the ocean and the surf line. So, which has just been a, a life of dynamic instruction. So for me, it's been incredibly rich with experience and, and knowledge and a really solid connection to the world around me.
9: If the bodyboard had never been invented, what do you think you would have done with your life? Would you have been a, a professional surfer? I don't know.
8: You know, I didn't surfing, you know, trying to surf in Kona was difficult. Yeah. And so I prefer to surf shallow reefs and, and sometimes in isolation. And so it was the appropriate tool for the job, you know, it was um a piece of equipment for accessing the kind of surf i wanted to surf so i don't know if i would have continued with with wave riding as much like my my, my relationship with the waves in the ocean wouldn't be anywhere near as intimate as it is now so i think that i'm not sure to be honest with you i don't i don't know i'd surf on a surfboard but i just don't have the same connection as i do you know bodyboarding and body surfing it's just more intimate close you're you know going through the waves with your whole body engaged so it's a different sensation and different connection I think.
9: I know when I was when I was coming up through high school, bodyboarding was a huge part of my life. I had my own crew. We went to Ponaiao most of the time. For us bodyboarders, it just seemed like like we were just there to hang, you know, and we were just there to catch waves. The relationship with the with the people that you're with, with the wave, a lot a lot more a lot more uh, intimate for sure.
8: Yeah, yeah, you you sense it. There's no, I mean, there's no rules, right? So, And you're doing it purely for the joy of it and, uh, you know, the camaraderie with other people, like-minded individuals.
9: More recently, I read that Tom had been working on developing some new softboard, soft surfboard technology. Can you talk a little bit more about what maybe Tom had been working on the last couple of, of decades? I'm curious as to what new stuff he was working on Well, his most,
8: I think, you know, his real love and where he wanted to head was flight. Even as far back as when I was working there in the late 70s, we were working on flying craft of of like ground effect of flying craft. And so he really wanted to escape the bounds of the gravity here on Earth and just kind of wanted to get out. So that was kind of his real passion. So he was looking at different ways to accomplish that, different flying machines, et cetera. And that I think was really his, the things he was most passionate about, you know, in, in the later years. You know, he did work on all kinds of different things like automobiles. He had some interesting ideas for automobiles. He had some, he had interesting ideas for just about everything. But I think flight and, and space was kind of where
9: he wanted to end up. Well, right on, Mike. Those were the questions I had for you. Thank you so much for taking the time to. Oh yeah, talk no story worries. Thank you.
0: That was champion bodyboarder Mike Stewart talking with HPR's Russell SubiONO about Tom Mori, the inventor of the boogie board, who passed away last month. He was eighty six years old. <laughs>
6: Cause when you're
0: high in the crook of a hot little look, entrepreneur Joe Ganahl recently debuted Hot Bento on national television when he was featured in the reality competition, America's Big Deal, airing Thursday evenings on the USA Network. Ganahl appears on episode three, where he vied for the opportunity to ink a deal where retail giants QVC, Home Shopping Network, Lowe's, and Macy's would sell his invention. The Conversations Lee and Song sat down with Ganahl after he returned home from New Jersey, where the competition was held. His creation, the Hot Bento, is a portable warming dish that can heat food from 145 to 165 degrees Fahrenheit.
4: A few years ago, I went to the Outdoor Retailer Show, and just about every booth was selling water bottles, like hydro flasks. Almost everybody was staggering how many booths had some type of bottle. Different shapes, different colors, different caps, but all the same technology. And I looked at that and said, well, how do we make a better water bottle? So we designed a water bottle that can boil water with a battery. It can maintain the temperature, so you set what temperature you want to drink your coffee at, it'll keep it there all day. We have a patent on that, and... uh, we launched that where we licensed it to another company, and they're marketing it. And then started thinking about, okay, well, how do we do that for food? We spent two years developing hot bento. You know, the technology was the same, but we had to determine what size to make the dish, you know, how long and how much current to apply to get to what temperature. And we made about eight different prototypes, tested them all, and then finally got down to what we felt was the right size and shape, and boom, away we go.
10: Walk us through a day of your R&D.
4: Oh, it's not anything like scientific with a white coat and pens in my pocket. So with, with hot bento, rice was what I used mostly. Okay, fill it with rice. How long does it take to heat? We started out with smaller, deeper pans and found out that, you know, because the heat comes from the bottom, it, it took longer. So I said, okay, we need to make it a little bit wider. And we experimented with water and, and with different things. And it was just, you know, trial and error to get the right size and shape. It wasn't totally scientific. I come from the electronics industry, and people who do what I do have to be optimists. I think all of my products are great, and everybody's going to love them, and and they're just going to do well, but they don't. You know, a lot of them do. We've had some real winners, but we've had some we just couldn't get off the ground either. And you have to recognize where to spend your time. You know, one of the people I used to work with had a saying, you have to fish where the fish are. (laughs) There's a lot of truth in that, so... So sometimes they're good ideas. We just don't have the time to execute them.
10: Joe, you did an excellent job executing Hot Bento and then tapping on your strains with your marketing background, able to pitch it on a national level on America's Big Deal. It was really nice to see online when I went to their website that you had sold out. How much product, how much inventory did you have to take with you for the show?
4: So part of the show requirement was to for everybody it was the same, was to supply $30,000 worth of product. They have two warehouses they use. So you, you had to have that merchandise in their warehouse a month before the show. And I'm sure you've heard about how crazy shipping is right now. That was a bit of a nightmare for us. We ended up air freighting at a great expense. But it was all worth it. It was a good show, and we got great exposure. And the people were just they were so nice. I was really surprised. I, I thought, you know, they'd be just bunch of jaded people pushing me through the motions and I feel like I made friends you know I feel like I made friends doing it they were really nice people Mm
9: -hmm. and I don't think
4: I just think that's the that's the whole the whole timber of the show you know I don't think that was for me I think that's just the way they are and that's gotta come down from the top right and
10: right so I understand that the show's concept was introduced by Joy Mangano she who invented the miracle mob and huggable hangers She's an entrepreneur herself, so she gets it.
4: Yeah, yeah. She's immensely successful. You know, it's funny. Um, when I got the contract for the show, it was a boilerplate contract that they used for reality shows. And it had stuff like, you know, you could be embarrassed, you could die, you could be injured. Right. And I was like, Jimmy, Christmas, I just want to show hot bento. What are you guys going to do to me? And I... I spoke to their legal team. They said, no, 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 no. That's for reality. We want this to be a warm, uplifting program that's good for everybody. And, and it truly was. You know, they really have succeeded at that. Their hosts are thoughtful. Their comments are sound. But boy, the contract sure was scary. <laughs>
10: <laughs> so how did they get on to you? Did you audition?
4: No. We listed our product. There's a relatively new website called Range Me. And it's largely, I I think, due to the pandemic where, you you know, before if you had a product, you'd you'd go to a trade show or you'd go to the buyer's office and you'd show it to them. And, and, you know, people stopped traveling. So this was like an electronic trade show where you put your products on there and different retailers come in to look at your product. And I found them by, you know, approaching a major retailer through their website and they said "All, all product presentations go through RangeMe. And went to Range Me and I got listed there. And America's Big Deal found us there and and asked us if we wanted to submit, you know, to be on the show. Like, absolutely.
10: So walk me through this. You did the pre-tape a month ago, but as far as knowing that you had to have $30,000 worth of product ready, how far back were you working to get ready for America's Big Deal?
4: So they needed that product in the warehouse a month before the show. So we were working on that three months ago, roughly.
10: Mm -hmm. And where is your production warehouse, or where are you manufacturing?
4: We manufacture in Shenzhen. I I have an office in Shenzhen, China, and I have staff there. I've never been to my office.
10: Do you speak Chinese? We have a really
4: good team. We have a really good team, and it's an interesting situation because the guy who runs our company there, his name is Hank Chow. just an amazing industrial designer. He doesn't speak English and I don't speak Chinese. The ideas are mine and I have to fine tune the stuff. And and we do it all using PowerPoint and, and translation. You know, so I draw really bad pictures with a lot of arrows and explanations that are translated and then we go back and forth that way and, and we make some tremendously complex products, very high tech products that way, and it works. It's pretty amazing. It's truly you know, truly something you wouldn't be able to do a few years ago.
10: So after your appearance on America's Big Deal, have you been getting any, what has the feedback been?
4: We sold a whole bunch on Amazon, and we've been invited to participate in a game show, not as live participation, but have our product be offered as prizes. So that was kind of nice. a pretty prominent show. We haven't finalized anything.
10: But how exciting. That's more national, like international exposure.
4: Absolutely. You know, it's a game show, so it's a great audience for us. Mm
10: Mm-hmm. And who are you marketing Hot Bento to?
4: Well, the interesting thing about Hot Bento is it has so many different, we call them market verticals, right? So many different market segments. You know, like we make probably the number one fishing crate for kayaks. We're only selling that to kayakers. Hmm. Hot Bento can be sold to kayakers. You're out kayak fishing and it's cold. You want a hot lunch? But our primary verticals are the construction industry because those guys, three out of four of them, are bringing lunch to work. And a lot of times, they don't have access to electricity. So if you're working in a cold environment, a hot meal is wonderful. That's one. Office workers, 68% of office workers bring lunch from home. Well, we have studies showing that a shared microwave is the most germ-laden surface in an office. So people just don't want to use shared microwaves. They don't want to go in shared lunchrooms. They don't want to stand in line to eat their food. Recreation is another one. I mean, I don't know if you've gone snow skiing, but imagine standing in line in a ski lodge. You're cold, you're hungry, and you're standing in line for 45 minutes for bad food that's really expensive. I mean, you can you can hit hot bento, turn it on at the top of the run, ski down, and have a hot meal ready for you when you get there. Um, 50% of students bring lunch from home, and that's probably more now since the pandemic. And then, uh, you know, housewares, the housewares industry says so that. Those are our primary what we call verticals.
10: And it does look like it's very simple to operate.
4: Yeah, this first one, you know, I have a saying whenever we make products, I have a saying that the first is the worst. Because it is. And not that it's a bad product, it's a great product. But every subsequent iteration, we're gonna upgrade it, we're gonna improve it. We're always working to make I strongly believe you can't just make a product and put it out there. Like every year we've got to be able to add something new to it. We've got to stay fresh, we've got to stay exciting. This one, we wanted to keep the cost down and keep it as simple to operate as possible. So all you got to do is double tap. We do a double tap. There's ridges around the button, and then you double tap. it. So like you're carrying it in a backpack or something. It lessens the chance of accidentally turning it on. So that will stay a model. But then we're introducing a model that will have app control. You'll be able to set the temperature. You'll be able to use... AC power, plug it into your car or the battery. you would be able to actually cook with it instead of just heat, you know. So that'll be a lot more complicated. it would be a lot more expensive and not quite so simple. So we want to cover both sides.
10: This is a great way to still have that wonderful, warm, hot food on the go.
4: Yeah, it's so that was the goal. Just make it so easy that he, we called it, you know, let's make it so easy even Joe can use it.
10: How is it like to travel with it? Does it do well through TSA?
4: Yeah, no problem. It's, it's airplane safe.
10: Okay. Lots of ideas and concepts running through that brain of yours, Joe. But before we go, share some final thoughts with budding entrepreneurs out there listening today.
4: Just no skid. Go for it. You can do it. You know, you've got to believe yourself. If you don't believe in what you're doing, nobody else is going to believe. And it's not always easy, you know, to, to be successful with a product most people are going to tell you no. People don't like to try new things. If you have a new idea and you want to make it and people tell you no, you got to believe in yourself. Don't be discouraged. For me, I don't understand the word no. No, for me, just means not now. And when somebody tells me no, I'm going to, it just makes me think, I'm going to change your mind. I'm going to come back. <laughs> You're going to change your mind. you got to believe. And, you know, for the youth in Hawaii, there's so many talented people with much better ideas than I have, If I can help any of you, please feel free to reach out to me. My website is www.innospec, I-N-N-O-S-P-E-C, innospec innospec.us. And that shows some of our products, and it it has slideshows with some products we've made in the past and kind of explains what we do, and and it has info at innospec.us. It'll come to me. There's a contact link there.
0: That was inventor Joe Ganahl, who says the hot bento is like having a portable microwave. He recently competed on Episode 3 of USA Today's reality show, America's Big Deal. And although he didn't score a contract, Ganal still considers his appearance a win. We'll share links on our website later today. <music> This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. This week, astronomer Christopher Phillips shares updates on our recent discovery of an infant solar system. Here's HBR's Dave Lawrence with your Monday Stargazer.
5: Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and, as usual... Turning to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips to see what he's got for us this week. Hey Chris, welcome back. Hey Dave, it's good to be here. So this week, stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn can be visible in the south and eastern skies till they set shortly before midnight. The moon this week is passing through its first quarter phase and will become brighter in the skies towards week's end. And this week, it's exciting news because we've got an update on a planetary discovery story that we recently had on Stargazer. Yeah, we covered it a few weeks ago, and we discussed the discovery of an infant solar system within which newborn planets were forming their own moons. Well, a team using the ALMA submillimeter telescope in Chile have captured spectacular images of this newborn system. And what is most remarkable about this image is not only the high resolution of the features inside it, but also that you can clearly see the planet that is host to its own moon-forming disk of debris. Wow, what kind of planet is it, Chris? Well, judging by the size of the features in this image, it's almost certainly a large Jupiter-like planet, a gas giant. While its moons are not fully formed yet, the debris disk is also clearly visible. And we'll have this image, by the way, where uh, people find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. But is it one big moon or a bunch of little moons? Well, just how many moons are forming in this region is unknown. However, we estimate the amount of material present in that disk to be able to produce perhaps three decently sized moons. Decent means like the size around Jupiter, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay. So potentially some very exciting worlds are under construction right before our eyes. However, an important thing to keep in mind about this is that young solar systems are incredibly violent places, and collisions between newborn worlds are common. So the final form of these moons is not yet decided. And based on some of your reporting, though, Chris, that'll mean in a few million years there might be an update. <laughs> yep, yeah, you're going to have to wait a while for this one. <laughs> but at least we have front row seats for the duration. Right on. It's Christopher Phillips and another fun Stargazer report here. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave
6: Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Moi community. More at HaleakalaRanch.com.
0: This fall, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service removed eight native Hawaiian birds from its endangered species list, officially declaring them extinct. One of those species was the answer to today's backyard quiz, a bright red native bird that called Moloka'i home. It was already endangered when naturalist Scott Wilson described it in the 1800s, in part because its scarlet red feathers made it highly prized for ali'i Kihe, kihei, the royal feather cloaks. The bird's formal name means ball of fire, which it resembles flitting from tree to tree. Other causes of its extinction, well, the same that continue to threaten other endemic Hawaiian birds, habitat loss, avian mosquito-borne parasites, and introduced predators. This beautiful red bird's name is kaka'uahe. In English, that translates to the Molokai honeycreeper. Hawaii at one time had at least 56 different kinds of honeycreepers. Now fewer than 20 of those species remain. And congrats to our backyard winner, John from Honolulu. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at (laughs) hawaiipublicradio.org.
2: the difference between palliative care and hospice? Well, they're almost opposites. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll have part two of our discussion with Mao to answer this question and many more. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
0: Listeners who want to share a story or send in feedback after listening to our show can do so through the talkback line. Pam Lopez emailed after our Aloha Stadium show last week with the three former governors, John Wahee, Ben Cayetano, and Neil Abercrombie. She writes, I wanted to say how much I enjoyed today's show. I really enjoyed the past governor's panel. Certainly the discussions from the governor's panel gave me info based on real experience and wisdom. The various side comments were enlightening and amusing. Bravo for bringing this show to your listeners. And here are a couple of listeners from our talkback line.
3: Carl Cook calling out of Waiwa.
5: New stadium. Great
3: idea. You got to make it cheaper. I went to the UH football game at the Clarence Chain. It was so expensive. I think I spent $181 for two seats. And they couldn't even fill the stadium. How do you expect to fill a big stadium come on you're pricing people out of going and entertaining themselves it's ridiculous you can't even fill a 9,000 how
4: are you gonna build a bigger one
3: hi this is Judy I was a season ticket holder when UH played football games at Aloha Stadium which is much more central than placing it at UH Manoa and I will never attend a football game at UH Manoa due to the congestion Parking at that lower field is horrendous, and you are saying $75, 85 to sit on bleachers without even seat backs in the Manoa rain. You will not see me
6: going to UH football in Manoa. Thank you.
0: And Adam Cusera wrote, I think a stadium for UH at UH is the best for our island. If the rail would have been started from UH to question mark, then traffic wouldn't be an issue build several high-rise rental units with rent caps or rent to own options with no resale clause for 20 years what we don't need is any more hotels malls or entertainment complexes we have Blaisdell for events problem for most events coming to hawaii is cost to ship we are not going to see any sports leagues coming here maybe for once a year event but they couldn't afford travel to play it's time to build enough low price rentals to make an impact not an 80-20 split with market rate. Well, if you have something you want to share about a story you've heard on our show, call our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. winds it up for us. Tomorrow, it's round two on the topic of a new stadium at Halawa. The three former Hawaii governors think affordable housing should be the focus instead. What do you think? Keep on calling. Join join in on our roundtable talk. Leave your comments on our talkback line. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.